Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Quadrilateral Cowboy, developed by Blendo Games. It was released on July 25th of 2016 for Windows and in October of the same year for Mac OS and Linux. Now, I've had my eye on this game for a while. I played a couple of Blendo games, aka Brendan Chung's other works. And, you know, with hacking in the news recently, I figured maybe we inject some <laughs> levity into that situation by playing a, a more lighthearted hacking game. Quite a bit more lighthearted, that's right. Um, this game also won the uh, IGF Grand Prize several years back, too. So that's always a good reason to check a game out. Yeah, Clint, do you have any exposure to this game before we decided to play it? It looked weird, and I thought it might be cool. I, I, wish, I, I wish I had a better story than that, but that's what it is. I mean, why do you try out any game? It looks cool. Good point. Mainly that, yeah. That's actually kind of why Brendan made the game, too. I was sort of looking back at some interviews, and it seems to me like he likes to make games that cater underserved or unserved audiences. Basically, his ethos seems to be like, if it hasn't been made yet, I want to try and make it. And if it's already been made, why should I bother? Like, I shouldn't make a shooter because I'm going up against Call of Duty. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of shooters, I did hear that he had a little inspiration from, I think it was Doom 3 when that came out. Apparently it had a really cool PDA, like a little cell yeah. phone you could come around with. And he's like, you know, someone should make a hacking game out of this. Yeah, I do remember in Doom 3, um, you there were a lot of interactable consoles, right? Like you could go um, onto any given computer in that game or most computers in that game and they would have like an interactable UI. And this game is actually made in the Doom 3 engine, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> so, you know, he was like, well, this, this engine seems to be able to support this. And uh, as we'll get into later, a big part of this game is interacting with basically a PC that's a physics object you plop down on the ground wherever you want and, and start uh, typing on. But to that end, I, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, Blendo Games, a.k.a. Bl Brendan Chung. Um, you know, he, he goes by that name. It's his uh, sort of nom de plume as a uh, game designer. But he is, uh, it's really just him. You know, he I think he contracts out some things, but he is very much like the singular force behind all the games that he's created, starting way back in 2009 with a game called Gravity Bone. And then um, all of his games actually share a universe. So there are several others, Flotilla, Air Forte, Adam Zombie Smasher, which is, I believe, the most popular of them, and then 30 Flights of Loving, which was actually kickstarted um, as part of the Idle Thumbs podcast return uh, in 2012. So <laughs> a lot of interesting history around this guy's games and, you know, tied in with one of my favorite video game podcasts of all time. May it rest in peace. <laughs> well, for me, I've played Adam Zombie Smasher before. Loved that game. And then I think the three of us played 30 Flights of Loving. Or maybe this was the two of us back when it was a two-man deal. Uh, it wasn't something we did a recording on, just kind of like a good barroom uh, discussion game. Because it is short. This is definitely my, my first foray in, into one of his games. Yeah, we we did play uh, Thirty Flights. Me and Josh did uh, a while back, and yeah, I mean these his games are all very like quick. They're short games, generally speaking. Quadrilateral Cowboy, by far, being the longest of of them so far. Um, but yeah, Thirty Flights takes about you know fifteen twenty minutes to play, an hour if you are really plumbing the depths. But um, 
you know, he, he does a, a lot of interesting things and he definitely has a very unified aesthetic with at least these first person games that he does. You know, they all have a very sort of blocky, like the characters almost look like Minecraft-esque uh, sort of thing going on. And he intentionally leaves things vague in these games, the ones where he's trying to say, like, tell a story. I think um, Brendan is, is one of those people that doesn't really want to spell things out and prefers to let people draw their own conclusions, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, he likes it when there's multiple interpretations to a game, and I don't even think he favors one particular interpretation himself. I think you're onto something there, because uh, I, I saw another quote of his is basically something along the lines of, like, when a when a creator explains this is the truth about my art, it kind of kills the art. So yeah, I think he, he prefers to leave things vague and, and let it sort of breathe on its own. Um, and there are like so many tenuous ties between these games. Um, I think the fandom calls it the Nuevos Ares universe. There's sort of a, a city that all of these things uh, take place in or around or intertwined in. And you know, this, this game quadrilateral cowboy is no different. Um, it basically takes place, uh, you are a hacker in a sort of retro, futuristic 1980s. Uh, so it's sort of like old-timey cyberpunk, if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Cyberpunk with 1980s hardware, down to the beigeness of your uh, computer's monitor. I was immediately like sort of tuned into that when... Uh, you pulled up music for your first intro mission, and it was a vinyl man, not a Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, all right, I see what we're working with here. <laughs> that was a cool little moment. It, that was a nice little thing, too, that record player you could have with you. Uh, the game's musical taste definitely tended towards the more old-timey from classical to kind of like old americana old songs um definitely had a kind of uh, nostalgic feel to a lot of the songs well i don't know if you noticed this josh but this uh harkened me slightly back to uh, a game we both recently played if on a winter's night for travelers in that it used a completely uh public domain soundtrack right a lot of classical songs songs that are no longer copyrighted uh, I think we're starting to see that a lot in uh, indie games because there are a lot of things entering the public domain and um, why not right it's all good it's good music yeah and actually that's I think one of the things that gets games tripped up way more often than you might think even like major games like um, I think we talked Alan Wake last time because because mm-hmm. we were playing uh, one of the other remedy games but that left Steam stores for years because of song rights. I guess it's a whole complicated thing and you only get them for so long. And yeah, if people can avoid that and just use public domain stuff, so much the better. Did you guys ever play the game Lemmings on the PC? It's a classic, classic um, puzzler kind of game. You're trying to lead all these lemmings from the entrance to the exit by building stairs, avoiding obstacles, digging through walls, da-da-da-da. Um... But it, it was pretty famous for the soundtrack at the time, which was all public domain songs. And that was thrown in there, I think, a month before the game was released because they lost the licensing rights to the soundtrack they had in place. And then it became famous for it.
Yeah, that's funny. I'm, I'm thinking of like other sort of very ubiquitous games that have a similar thing. Um, Peggle, Peggle and Peggle 2 would always play Ode to Joy when you finished a level. <laughs> and obviously that's a public domain song as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely adds to the aesthetic. And, you know, until we start seeing uh, public domain soundtracks in indie games as a cliche, I think it's going to continue to be an effective way to get the job done. It can set a very particular mood. And beyond that, like, I don't know, there's a lot of indie game creators out there where composing is not their strong suit. And if they're able to fit their game's mood to, you know, someone who was super good at composing in the 1800s, then so much the better. Right. Standing on the shoulders of giants. I got to be honest, I think some of my favorite indie games lately have been teams with really good composers that make their own, like, chip tunes it makes or breaks the game for me i agree i'm, I'm a big fan of a, a bespoke soundtrack i think it, it can be a interesting choice to do a public domain one but you know if it's not in your skill set it's not in your skill set yeah um that's not to say that uh brendan chung hasn't partnered with you know talented musicians in the past if you play 30 flights of loving you will see um that he he partnered i believe with chris remo who did the uh campos who is campo santos composer uh, for that game, and he partnered before that with a surf rock band for Adam Zombie Smasher. So, you know, he, he it was a choice to do it this way for this game, and I think it worked out for it. Why don't we move on to some of the game's other uh, choices in terms of maybe how it's how it's set up? What exactly are you doing in this game? So this game is a hacking game, but. You're hacking in order to, order to heist things, to rob people, to download their brains, whatever you want to do. Um, but I really like the way they set this up. Um, you aren't actually going through and doing the heists yourself. You're planning them out. Like your computer hackers, they're building a world, a simulation, in which they can try to do this heist over and over again until they get it right. At that point, you just go to the chalkboard and you say, okay, I've, I've planned it out, I'm all set. And it does it for you, which is great. You know, every time you die, it's not like, oh, why do you just get to restart? No, you know, this is you running the simulation for later. It's not like if uh, you're playing Microsoft Flight Simulator and you crash the plane, then everything's over. You just restart. <laughs> yeah, there aren't real people dying when you crash that MS Flight Simulator game. Thank but, God. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But no, I, I agree. This gave you a lot of uh, additional options, right? It made sense why you could go into no-clip mode and inspect the stage. Another cool thing. Yeah, you can go into no-clip mode and just walk through walls and see what it, where everything is. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of this framing device for a few reasons, uh, not least of which is because the first mission of the game uh, allows you to construct the VR rig that you're going to be using for this entire endeavor. Uh, and someone uh, had a hard-on for building PCs when they, they made this game because the whole like entire first mission is a love letter like, insert the RAM, insert the microprocessor, <laughs> close the case, and now you're ready to roll. <laughs> it definitely built up that like 80s hacker aesthetic where, of course, they're building their own hardware because were there even computer companies back then probably i don't know i'm a <laughs> child of the 80s myself all the good ones did it themselves <laughs> to that end once you have your vr rig and you're ready to plan your heists you go in um and yeah as josh said you're you're not actually doing it you're planning it and then that allows you to perfect it and to me that's sort of where this game 
uh, landed. It was sort of two phases for me. It was the planning, then the execution. And you don't actually see the real execution, but you do still have to go through all the motions. So to me, like inspection, maybe like the first stage where I go into Noclip, understand all the things I have to do, and then plan out the perfect least amount of steps, least amount of inputs that I need to to have to complete the mission. Oh man, you went way more deep than I did. I just went for it. I don't, <laughs> I, I tried the no clip thing one time and I'm like, yeah, okay. And I just kind of went for it. I don't know. There is the no clip, but we should mention that it doesn't let you cheat at the game. You can activate it and you can see whatever you want, go wherever you want. But when you deactivate it to continue on with the mission, you warp back to where you started. Yeah, you can't use Noclip to actually complete the mission. You can only use it to view. It's like non-interactive, um, basically. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And in this game, like they have a very particular meaning behind what hacking is, quote unquote. Like a lot of what hacking is in real life is social engineering, right? And in this game, um, there's no NPC interaction. We'll talk maybe more about that later. But um, hacking in this game is sometimes as simple as like taking the bolts off a grate. Uh, or, you know, entering a pretty simple string command into your deck to turn off um, an alarm or open a door. So uh, it is fun in that, you know, you are writing these code, these lines of strings or lines of uh, input that will interact with the environment and it feels like it's coming from you, but it's not maybe hacking in the way that a lot of people would think of it. I'd go even farther than that. This game definitely leaned into the hacker hacker aesthetic a lot you're working on a command line for goodness sake like that's not something you see in a lot of games uh uh not even something tons of programmers necessarily do these days but uh it, it leans into that a lot but it didn't necessarily feel like coding for me i mean i code as my job uh but it didn't it felt more like lining up sequential steps as opposed to kind of like looking around at different solutions it's light scripting. Yeah, yeah, you're you are kind of like basically and it's that's especially more apparent later on once you get like blink, right? Like you set up a script that you want to run, then you can blink and have it run. Um and yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a, it's it's more simple than like writing a program. It's more like writing a a quick script. Yeah, you're accessing devices and then doing quick action calls to them or or whatever whatever you would call that. Mhm. Yeah, it's it's a it's an aesthetic of hacking rather than like um, maybe a more researched and nuanced vision of it, which is fine because th- this game is all about aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And I think it does a really good job of portraying them and, and getting across the idea of being a hacker while not requiring you to have any programming knowledge, <laughs> or, um, which is a feat in itself, right? Yep. There are games out there for sick people like me who want to program at work and then on their <laughs> in their own spare time too. Uh, so those things are out there. This game, I think it was a good kind of like, yeah, like Clint said, scripting. It's um, maybe not seeing everything, but it's lining things up and using this blink mechanic they have, firing them off at certain points. And it does a great job at that. Yeah, well, we've we've mentioned a couple things you can do so far, but maybe we delve a little bit more into how it's all introduced and what it what what you're being asked to do. Um, from my uh, perspective, most of the missions in this game are are pretty simple. Basically, use a mechanic at hand to get a MacGuffin and then get to the extraction point. And those mechanics vary over the course of a mission, and and per pretty much all of them, they're introducing something new, at least up until the very end. So there's a lot of variety here, but maybe maybe a little less room than I would have uh, liked for them to stretch their legs and explore them. 
for me, this almost had too much variety uh, and I'll probably talk about this as we go along, but I feel like they were constantly introducing new things and then I was waiting for the, I guess, culmination of everything to come together and that just, I felt like it fell flat when it came time to actually bring it together. It's just like a whole bunch of like little missions, like try this thing, try this thing, try this thing. And then I filled up on appetizers and there's no meal. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of agree that they, they introduced way more mechanics than they ever really took advantage of or explored more thoroughly. And you know, some of that is the limits of a one man operation, but some of that is like having way too many good ideas for one game. Maybe. Yeah. But I, I hear you on that, and I do feel like maybe this was a game that was um, missing a true third act um, and had more of, you know, it, did, it never gave you that final test to the extent that I would have liked it to. I think there's, you can kind of see this game in a three-act structure. You have the first set of missions. This is probably the longest set of missions where each new uh, mission gives you a new piece of equipment, new gizmo, like the launcher or the weevil, the little robot you can control. Um, And you play around with those uh, through three different missions inside that uh, kind of mission set. And then you go, you get the next gizmo and you keep on going forward. Uh, You start, you use your deck with all of these, which is the computer that you throw down and you type commands into the um, command line for here. After that, this is, I think, in retrospective, my favorite part of the game were the uh, two-man heists, where you are kind of working with a partner, but you also control a partner. I think an interesting thing about this was that you play as like person one, and you go do a bunch of stuff, and then you play as person two, and you kind of take advantage of the openings that person one creates. Then you go back and play as person one again and fast forwards you to the point where you left off. And then you can work with the openings that person two creates. That was a really interesting thing for me. Question. Did I miss something or did that go away? So I was really confused by this whole concept. Like everything is a build on things and then they did this for a level and then it went away and then went nowhere. Did I miss something or is that actually how it was meant to be? No, that that's true. And this, you know, it's interesting, Josh, that you said this is your favorite part, because I thought it was like a little disjointed compared to the rest of it. Like, I, I agree with you that I liked the idea of sort of having two characters that you control and build off of each other from. But uh, to Clint's point, they did then just do away with that. And they had a cut scene or an interstitial scene between the levels where you basically acquire the powers of the other two people. And then your final two missions, basically, you acquire the two people's powers, and then you're using your initial sort of deck and mechanics, like the the turret and the um, launcher and stuff like that, um, to to final to do the final two missions. So they they do kind of like dismiss the whole two man structure for the final two missions, which I thought was a, a weird choice. But maybe it just would have gotten too complex if you had access to all of the tools and two characters to use them with. Then why do it at all? This is kind of my whole theme for the entire game. It's just like, pick a couple things, do them well. Why are you throwing a million things on the plate and then you're taking things off the plate now? And I just, it, was, it felt disjointed the whole way through. I, I think it was like the purpose of it was, to my mind, for storytelling reasons, right? Like they wanted to highlight the fact that this is a three man crew, a three woman crew, actually. I agree that like it was a little weird that they never sort of put all of the things together and there might be good reason for that like we never saw the prototype where they had a mission with you know everything all at once but I, I you can imagine it and I I do see that it might have gotten too complex but 
yeah, it seems to me like that was a mechanic that probably could have done better in just a different game, you know? Like, it's a good idea, but maybe it didn't need to be here. Yeah. When they do finally put it all together in those final few missions, um, you know, you have your new sort of, uh, you know, the jelly bones that let you squeeze through doors or the or th- squeeze through crevices or the ultra climb that lets you reach high pillars. But then also all of the equipment, the deck, the weevil, the launcher, the turret. Um, to me, that was like, those were the most fun missions in the game for me, right? Like I really enjoyed having access to you know, all of the, the different tools in the tool belt, except I guess that two-man structure um, to do those final few missions. Well, think about it this way, like the jelly bones, the ultra climb, these things, these powers you unlock during the two-mans and then you eventually get during the put them all together missions. They're useless in the put them all together missions. They are ways during the two-man missions to restrict the mobility of one of your characters but not the other but then when your one character has all of these things there's no reason to have jelly bones like you can just make a hallway instead of a vent and you've achieved the same thing gameplay wise yeah to me it's it's like partially like an end of half-life 2 thing right like they're giving you the victory lap um they're they're like super empowering you to be able to solve the problems at hand and they're obviously like the most complex and difficult missions to that point in the game so i think it's meant to be a like a mode of player empowerment even though they are removing a mechanic to to accomplish it Brian, I think you were insulting my intelligence when we started this whole thing <laughs> clint small vocabulary <laughs> Well, don't, he, I believe Brian said, don't feel bad if you have to look things up, Clint. And I, I will just point something out. I said that only because I looked stuff up. Uh, that's I was going to take a tally. I'd never looked anything up. So I will say one of the things I really liked about this game is they had a mission skip. You could go with any mission and just say, nah, not for me. And this helped me out a lot. There were two points I've used it. Um... The first point was with the, um, it's a missions where you first get the launcher and you need to use that to launch the safe from the like secure guns blazing area to the extraction point. And I got a couple of really bad physics rolls on that. My safe would like bounce onto the platform and fall off or would miss it completely, ignoring the path the launcher said it was supposed to take. So I almost gave up on the game at that point because I'm like, I spent 20 minutes doing the thing I just did uh, and had to do it again because of a bad physics calculation here. Um, And then I realized, oh, I can just skip this. Like, I know what the solution to this puzzle is and I can just keep on going. So I did that for one of those early missions, and then I did it for the last mission, too, because there was I couldn't figure out that laser thing on the um, space elevator mission, like where you have those four things of lasers you got to get by. Um, couldn't get past it. I did look th- something up afterwards. Apparently, you can go around that whole area and just throw something what? at the glass by the control <laughs> panel and jump in there, and you're good. And I'm like, okay, well, now I've solved this puzzle, so I'm good. So I I knew what had to be done, and I double-checked with Brian, but the, the absurd string thing I was going to have to put together to make it happen, I was just annoyed by, so I didn't end up doing it. But the, the thing that really pissed me off about all that was I had a super creative solution for the whole thing, and I went to pull out my launcher, and this is the one mission where oh, I don't yes. the fucking launcher. And I'm like, this is like punitive bullshit. I hate it when games don't 
they like give you tools to be creative, and then when they're like, no, that would make it too easy, they pull it off the plate. Like, then design your levels better. Like, it would have been a. I had this cool thing where I'm like, I'm gonna shut off the lasers for two seconds. I'm gonna launch myself through here, and then do this thing, and then I'm like, oh, don't have my launcher. Never mind, can't do it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I understand where how that would make that level like rather simple, but I agree. Like, once you get a tool in the tool belt, I also don't like when they take them away, um, unless it's like a you know, like a Metroid situation where like they make you powerful and then disempower you right off the bat. But not in the last level. Like don't build you up just to be like, oh, sorry, you don't have it anymore. That's like the final boss where they change all the rules. Like this is dumb. And we've already talked about why that's bullshit. Yeah, this is supposed to be the final (laughs) test. This is to put everything together. Not like, oh, we're just doing something else now at the end. What? Clint, if it makes you feel better, I did the exact same thing. I'm like, oh, I've got a cool way to get to what I need to go. I'm understanding the things the game is asking me to do. And I uh, like hit the emergency release with my aimbot while I'm standing on top of the thing that gets launched to the top of the space elevator. And I, I'm like, okay, launcher time. Just get over to this guy. <laughs> and it's not there. Yep, same. Although I totally understand not being able to use it outside. Like This may be mad if I really thought about it. I'm like, okay, I understand not being able to use the launcher outside. You're in space. You'd, you'd fly you fly use it in nowhere. space before. You use it on the coma downloading thing. And I was trying to give them the benefit of the doubt, but you're right. Um, you're right. There's no good reason. There's no good reason to not have a launcher on that level. I, I agree. Like, you know, storyline speaking, it, it makes no sense. Um, just to circle back real quick, I did not mean to insult your intelligence when I said use a guide. I meant to insult the game's tutorials. <laughs> the game is a tutorial. The whole thing, the entire game is a series of tutorials. To that to that end, though, maybe they're not super clear. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I agree. It does feel sometimes like this game is a series of like increasingly complex tech demos or idea proofs of concept. Yeah. And maybe they don't ever deliver on like, turning that into a cohesive product or cohesive thing. But to that end, weirdly, the game does have mod support. And I wish someone would just use that to make like the game I want to see here. (laughs) All right. I think you just read my three word review. It's sitting in front of me and you pretty much used like most of my (laughs) words and said everything I was about to say. I'll just repeat you later. (laughs) That's fine. While we're talking about the missions here, I will say that, you know, this is a one-man game studio. There are limited resources to go around, but I did like that there were different paths and different solutions you could have to the missions, even with, you know, it's just one guy making this entire game. Like, I would be talking with Brian, and he he was talking about how he had to go, um, this mission had a time limit because he had to make it down to the uh, door before the door relocked itself. Uh, so he said that the mission was really tough because of that. And I'm like, I just broke a window and uh, used that to launch myself back to the extraction point. That's what I did. I like took my time and I'm like, how do I get out of here? Oh, glass bottle through window. Done. <laughs> well, and it turns out I'm an idiot. So yeah, I, I like had this extremely baroque set of like commands that would allow me to download the stuff before the three minutes were up and I came out through the door I went in um, but that took a lot of planning and yeah it turns out don't do it that way just break the window <laughs> Yeah, for me the, the aimbot took forever to set up right so that was a no go I just had to find another way 
Oh, that, that, that was like a third of the quick loads and, and, or quick saves and quick loads that I ever did in this game was like figuring out the exact numbers I needed to type the, to position the sniper rifle. Wait, hey, Brian. I'm going to say something real stupid right now. I didn't know there were quick saves or quick loads. Yeah, wait, what? Did, there's quick saves and quick loads? Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> shit. Well, that, that knowledge might have changed your guys' approaches. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I did a full run through every time without ever checking. Man, that would have made some of this a little easier. It would have made it a whole lot easier. Like, you get to the point when you're like, oh, I got a bad physics bounce. Let me just go back in time five seconds. Yeah, put, push that safe just a little to the left. And yeah, no, that, that was my solution to those types of problems for sure. Was, hang on. This is important. It's going to... Let me explain it. But uh, what was the quick save and quick load buttons? I think it was F5 and F9. You know, the standard, like, old school um, RPG quick save and quick load buttons. So yeah, the I'm game... I'm pretty annoyed by that. I don't know if it was F5. F5, I think, was move the insertion point. So yeah. it was probably, like, F7 and F9, which I yeah, maybe, am... Maybe it was F8 and F9. Yeah, this that pisses was... me off a little bit, because <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'd go looking for that, but at the top of the screen, they show you the entire, like... They spell it out for you. F1, do this. F2, do this. And they don't mention the quick save, quick load. They should have had, like, save state... And as uh, like F F eight and F nine, just to like show you that that was a thing that was possible, because that makes sense even like diegetically from a VR perspective. You're in a simulator, you know. This is like an emulator I'm running. <laughs> With as many tutorials as this had, it missed the most important one. I also didn't know about <laughs> level skips, so I'm I'm a little annoyed that we all played through this entire game and we're learning about features from each other uh, in the cast. I will say that the one feature that was cool that I really liked. I won't say the one feature that was cool. There were several things that were cool about this game. My favorite being the deck. But the, the game mechanic that I liked the most was that you could always see your friend's best times in each mission. Yeah, oh, yeah, that, that was cool. <laughs> so it made it like a cool little leaderboard thing going on. So you could kind of be like, ah, I found a better way to do it than Brian, that bastard. He told me I had to go look at the guides, <laughs> and I still did it faster than him. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. I like that. That was a cool implementation of that. I agree. I liked, I enjoyed that too. And that sort of like played into my whole like, all right, plan out and then do this perfectly aspect. And yeah, totally agree. The other thing that I enjoyed, you know, aside from the execution aspect was um, sort of a weird storytelling that went on in between the margins of this game. Obviously, there's no tech, no speech in this game, rather no text, no speech, uh, no text, at least in dialogue form. Everybody has a Charlie Brown adult voice going on. Yeah, so all of the storytelling you're getting is happening through, you know, things that happen on the screen that aren't verbal. So, you know, you are seeing, say, like a contract on a table, and you can actually pick it up, rotate it around, look at it, and read it. And from that, I found out that my group was called the Impala uh, Solutions Group or something like that. And <laughs> that that's basically the only way to find out what any of your characters' names are throughout this entire thing as well. <laughs> In between the missions, they do these sort of interstitial things as well. Like you're going on your hover bike to pick up one of your friends from their terrible apartment because Nuevos Aires does not look like a great place to live. Um, <laughs> and they're living like, you know, uh, container stacks or old trucks stacked on top of yeah. each other or things like that. Um, so you, you guys are definitely playing as kind of like underclass people. You're going to night school to learn how to do this electrical engineering and hacking kind of stuff and 
you play badminton together and that's how you found each other. That's my head cannon. I think that actually plays out because you can see sort of like a time progression of photographs in one of the apartments as well, sort of showing how you, you came up together. Oh yeah, you're all orphans too, you know. Just another yeah. See, I thought they were all just sleeping with the same really hairy dude because he was in all of their apartments <laughs> at one point. That's true. Wait, Two no. of the characters do have a penchant for hairy dudes. <laughs> I think it's the same guy. Did he have a mustache? I can't remember. That might have been the only place on his body that didn't have hair from what I could see. So several times when you pick up your friends, there's this just really heavy dude and, and, and bet, not heavy, hairy. He could be heavy too. It's hard to tell. Yeah, they're all blocks. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he's always there. He's always passed out in their bed. I'm like, are they all sleeping with the same guy? Or did they just forget to, to draw a second a, guy? <laughs> at the very end of the game, when you're kind of going through the epilogue, there's a couple of pictures. And one of them has like, it's a guy who he has the same like skin color as that yeah. in bed guy. So I'm wondering if he's also similarly mustached. Because maybe it's like, yeah, you know. Here's the friend who gets passed around. <laughs> boyfriend, boyfriend, friend, boyfriend. I think it's possible. I mean, they, they, there's definitely like a history of Brendan Chung having love triangles in his game, see 30 Flights of Loving. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he's doing that type of sort of, you know, unspoken storytelling or environmental storytelling that um, that kind of works for me. You know, this game has all kinds of stuff like that, like text showing up in unexpected places, like on little objects in the game. Some of my favorites on like the liquor bottles and, you know, the, the processor that you pick up. And of course the names of stuff like jelly bones, which I find horrific and hilarious at the same time. (laughs) Oh, to add to a little bit of body horror, how you acquire the jelly bones (laughs) is you find a body modification vending machine and it says insert torso so you insert your torso (laughs) and interesting noises get made in those interstitial scenes the one that is most memorable to me is the security breach one right like Mm. this to me is like sort of the climax of the game where or the inciting incident of the game where you grow a fucking machine gun out of your arm and go into a combat trance and destroy three mechs that come into your base and afterwards you know, your teammates are wielding an electric katana and a rocket launcher, and you're like, all right, now what? And you board a fucking airship and um, do the rest of the game from there. And all of this is done unspoken. It's just like taken as like a fact. And it's just an interesting way to tell such a crazy part of a story. As if that was the most normal thing you did on a Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) That's not part of the game at all. You're just on a computer during the game. And then during the (laughs) cutscenes, you're a robot ninja. No big deal. Or there's a um, inter- another interstitial where you hijack this boat. They end up calling the Farfig. I think after like Farfig Newton, the old Volkswagen driving ad. Um, but you, the like point of this interstitial is that you have to change the the oil in the boat, and it's yeah. just like a very <laughs> mundane thing like that. Right after you just take out these hunter killer robots. Yeah, and. I just really like how they sort of make the dramatic stuff rote and the rote stuff dramatic. Um, (laughs) It's an interesting sort of subversion of of what you'd expect to be playing in the game. Like, you would expect to be doing the actual heist in most heist games, right? But no, you're doing the planning for the entire thing. You'd expect to be the one wielding the rocket launcher. But no, you're you're seeing that in the cutscene. It's, like, usually... If you're not doing the most interesting thing, 
my question to the game developer is, why am I not doing the most interesting thing? But for some reason, it works in this game, so I'm not too mad about it. Well, see, I played the game to be Elite Haxor, not to be a super mech Rocket robot. launcher, yeah. <laughs> it's it's all in the box, right? Yeah, I guess you're right. It It, it is as advertised. <laughs> So with that, why don't we sum up our thoughts, uh, hack into the brains of each of our collective consciousnesses on this game with some three-word reviews. All right, my three-word review for this game is Long Compile Times. In computer programming, there's something known as building or compiling your program. This is where you take a separate program called the compiler, and it translates your code from this human-readable, high-level stuff down to machine-readable computer instructions that, you know, your Intel CPU or what have you knows how to work with. After compiling, you have a finished program separate from what you started with that's ready to run and do what you will. In some sense, compiling is when the program comes together, and another it's when the program falls apart. That's when all of the mistakes you have in the syntax, a missing punctuation mark, an uncapitalized verb somewhere, they come back to bite you because computers do just what you tell them to. Quadrilateral Cowboy has a lot of interesting ideas, but I spent the game waiting for everything to come together. I loved the way that they had the dual heists going on with the kind of asynchronous programming. I appreciated the ways that the missions had multiple paths to victory, but I felt like the hacking mechanic was never explored to the degree it deserved. I kept on hoping for a game that never showed up. It never truly felt like programming, although it came close, and never closer than when I messed up a sequence and everything halted and caught fire. Thumb decidedly sideways. (laughs) (laughs) Thumbs sideways for me, yes. My three-word review is planning is creation. Uh, As the player plans their heist in Quadrilateral Cowboy, you aren't spending your time practicing execution like you would in a typical video game, where you repeat a task and then eventually you're good enough to accomplish it, like beating a hard boss in Dark Souls, for example. In Quadrilateral Cowboy, there's no death, really. You're basically iterating your plan, uh, your creation, as it is, and then finally, when you've lined everything up perfectly, you execute it and put it out into the world, recording your time to extraction for all to see. All in all, I had a great time with Quadrilateral Cowboy. However, I wished it spent a little more time with all its various systems fully unlocked so it could enjoy it a bit longer. For now, I'll look fondly back on the plans I created along the way, but at the same time, I wish I had seen more. So my three-word review is couldn't hack it. (laughs) For me, this game felt more like a series of tutorial missions that never actually led into a real game. And as fun as a few of those concepts were, none of it came together in any kind of meaningful or cohesive way. It was like listening to a guy that you know has some really good points to get across, but then he can't get a single sentence out. It was super frustrating for me. Um, I guess at the risk of sounding harsh, I really hope that someone with a little more polished level and game design experience could take some of those cool ideas that he had with Quadrilateral and then put it into something more interesting. So Brian, to your point, maybe some mod support would be a really good thing for this game. And I get it. Not every creative person is going to be great at implementation, just like a great implementer might not be a super inspired person. Uh, But for me, this game really only nailed half the equation and fell kind of short of being the full package. So if your expectations aren't super high, this might be worth checking out just for some of the cool concepts that he has. 
but there are certainly better options in the hacking and spy game genre. It, it's tough to do all that as a one-man unit, but good ideas here. I think come for the ideas. Stay for listening to our podcast, I guess. Uh, and to that end, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to share it with some folks you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to get in touch, drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod. And for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on hacking. I'm glad I wasn't the only one that was like kind of decidedly mediocre on it. Like it was interesting, but it certainly wasn't anything I'd like want to play again, unfortunately. No, the first two missions like, hell yeah, I'm a Heat Laxor. Leet Haxor. There it is. Heat Laxor. <laughs> Whatever the Is that a new Pokemon? Yeah, for sure. I'm gonna cast hacking on you. Yes. Um it was cool. It actually made me feel like doing a little bit of script again, it even for someone that doesn't understand computers that much, they could have done that and it could have made them feel cool but it never did anything with it past that point yeah that, that was like when i felt the most fun in this game was when i felt like i was creating something like the weird thing about computer programming is uh, like the whole world of possibility is kind of there from the start right like the operations are designed into the the platform for the most part unless you're you know creating your own compiler and your own you know libraries and things of that nature and all the libraries so to speak were here for this game so Despite the fact that you're not actually creating that much, it still felt like a creative endeavor to me, which I think was maybe its biggest strength. Yeah. I think the biggest strength was kind of the figuring out what you're supposed to do. It was a a different flavor of puzzle, if you will, than one where you come in and you know all the rules right away. Like, oh, here's a sliding block puzzle. Oh, now it's Mm. on ice. I know how this is going to go. Like, this was a kind of different flavor of puzzling you know to, to all of that it sounds like we're we're in our discussion sound or discussion of what we enjoyed about this game a lot more positive than how we actually came out after we finished it which you know if the biggest enjoyment i get out of a game is coming here and talking to you guys about it then i'm going to consider that a good game all right <laughs> <laughs>